the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. This is Zudi Jasser in the chair for Seth Leapson. Always an honor to be in for him when he's away and also in the on the program when he's here. Uh, today we have uh, a lot to cover. Hopefully you're all headed into a wonderful weekend as uh, we might break 100 this weekend. Um, so what I wanted to do is uh, get you caught up on some of the things that uh, are near and dear to my heart that we cover on a regular basis and uh, get all of Seth's listeners uh, up to speed on some of the things that uh, we cover on a global basis. And one of the things is where we are against the jihad. You'd think that as we covered the pandemic ag nauseum to the point of a, a almost a national OCD, if you will, and uh, to the point of preventing us from returning to normalcy, the, the threats out there haven't changed. The threats uh, actually just because they're not being reported on doesn't mean that they don't exist. And uh, we have a number of things to cover. I want to walk through with you first the, the top of the news, which is going on with Secretary Kerry's uh, taped conversations that have been released and the conversations that he had with Iran's foreign minister, Javed Zarif. We'll talk about that in a sec. And we'll also talk about um, the resurgence of ISIS in Mozambique, the uh, situation in uh, uh, Afghanistan, as the Biden administration, I think, offensively decides to withdraw our troops on 9-11. What's going on there? Uh, granted, I think most of us have realized that we should get our troops out of there. There's not much uh, that's been accomplished, sadly enough, other than the the destruction of al-Qaeda, but the Taliban continues to control that area. So uh, what's the strategy there? And also, why 9-11? What is, how tone deaf are they? And last, Europe, France, Turkey, and I thought of no one better to bring in to talk about this with me than Ryan Morrow. Ryan is the director of the Clarion Intelligence Network. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Gee, thanks so much for having me. It's great to hear your voice. Hope you're doing well and uh, staying safe and busy as ever? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in Florida now, so I can't uh, complain too much. Split my time between New Jersey and Florida and hoping to spend as much time in Florida as I can. So Nothing smarter than leaving the, uh, and I don't say this in a biased way, living in Arizona, but uh, nothing smarter than leaving uh, the disaster that is New York State and going to Florida. I think a lot of people are doing that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, the Northeast, it's a, it's a giant exodus. <laughs> so, um, Let's talk about this. Uh, uh, what is this brouhaha about Secretary Kerry? Now, be- before we lay out the details, uh, I think uh, Adam Credo has led some of the reporting on this from the Free Beacon. And he said the leaked audio tape of Iranian Foreign Minister Javed Zarif indicates he had no knowledge of covert because uh, let me lay the story out. Secretary Kerry audio tapes and reports from a few days ago, even from The New York Times, said that he released to Iran during private conversations to Zarif, told him about the fact that Israel had over 200 operations inside Syria. 
and that that was news to Zarafani and not heard about it. Well, Secretary of State Blinken responded and said, oh, that's nonsense. It was public information. They were just talking about things that were well known. Well, yesterday, audio tape reveals, and Zarif said on tape, he said, Kerry told me that Israel had launched 200 airstrikes against you, Iran, said Zarif. You didn't know that, asked his interview? No, no, he replied. I hadn't heard it anywhere. These new details contradicted State Department officials who repeatedly said the information was already in the public domain. Senator Ted Cruz today responded by spearheading efforts to pressure Kerry into resigning. He said if the tape is verified, it would signal catastrophic and disqualifying recklessness by Envoy Kerry to Foreign Minister Zarif that endangered the safety of Americans and our allies. And this is so important because... It's not just because he's our climate change czar. I mean, in many ways, he's irrelevant. But it's not irrelevant because he was Secretary of State for quite some time uh, under the Obama administration. And it's not irrelevant because, oh, he was pictured famously sitting having dinner with he and his wife and with uh, Bashar Assad and his wife uh, only a matter of months to a a year or so before uh, the genocide that ensued in March 2011. So, Ryan, what's what's going on here? Well, uh, I must admit, I'm not a fan of John Kerry, so I have a certain bias here. But even with that bias, I struggle a little bit with this story. Uh, My greater concern is what point John Kerry was trying to make to the Iranian foreign minister. Why was that a topic of conversation saying, like, oh, hey, you know, Israel has struck your forces 200 times. Like, like what what point was he making? And And I can't think of anything good. Um, but as for the actual transferring of information about that, um, I did see an article uh, that was published that did did say that Israel had struck um, over 200 times uh, Iranian-linked targets in Syria. Uh, so it, it looks like it was public information, even if the Iranian foreign minister didn't know about it. So uh, I, I'm just I got to pull back from saying that he necessarily like took classified information that wasn't publicly known and then like leaked it to the Iranian. Um, I got to see a little bit more than that. Yeah, I mean, so so that response is a response that you give to the intelligence uh, uh, information interrogator from the IG's office because you don't want to be arrested for treason for releasing American secrets, right? So that's, that's okay, okay, I get that. Maybe it was public information. That's not the debate. The debate really is the, the brilliant question you started with, which is, why the heck is he trying to be obsequious with the foreign minister of Iran and sort of endear himself? To, I mean, I can't think of any other reason than the fact that because they wanted to Get back to their nuclear deal. Remember, there were also reports uh, even before Biden became President Biden or even President-elect Biden that that Kerry had met with some Iranian officials in, in back channel areas and actually violating some of the Logan Act and and other areas of concern because he was telling them to wait four years and, you know, things will be able to ratchet back and kick back to the deal that they had. So I can't interpret it anything else other than him sort of giving him morsels of information that – Maybe we're public, but trying to say, listen, uh, you're getting hammered by the, the Israelis in Syria. And, you know, and I can tell you as a Syrian-American with family being that we're actually being hammered by Khomeinists and the Iranian Republican Guard and Russian operations and the Assad regime, 
This is beyond offensive that he thinks this is somehow because I sat on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and we visited some of these countries. I know how these conversations go. Many times diplomatic conversations evolve where you try to you, you see other folks from the State Department trying to endear themselves to the others by saying things that really don't seem appropriate. But yet they're just trying to endear themselves. Right. And I, I think anyone who's a public figure in the realm of politics, especially just the type of personality who wants to be a senator or president, John Kerry does, they like to be liked. It's very difficult for them to resist exactly. that. Um, and, and, and then you add on top of that the issues of what he and his family's relationship could be to the, to the family of the reef and, and also what, what was he actually negotiating or talking about? What was the purpose of this conversation? Is it related to the nuclear deal, even though we've been told that that's somehow separate from Iran's sponsorship of terrorism. Um, It's the attitude of the conversation that bothers me a lot more. And if I was sitting in Tehran, I would have to think that the Americans sound pretty desperate to get back into this deal when really it should be the Iranians who are desperate. The Trump administration handed the Biden administration an unprecedented level of of like a strong hand at the negotiating table against the Iranian regime, even politically, they could have gotten a better deal if they telegraphed their moves in a different way. Like if they were like, hey, we'd like a deal, but we're not desperate for it, and then kept the pressure on and blamed Trump for it, then when the success came, they could have claimed it for themselves because that's how politics works. So the Biden administration policy right now doesn't really make sense to me from a national security perspective, but even from a, a political standpoint, uh, I don't get it. Yeah, the, the Biden doctrine, I think, is is going to turn out to be uh, basically uh, um, hand the greatest terrorist spreading regime on the planet whatever it wants, because uh, there's no sign that they're uh, I'm, I'm already seeing an Arabic chatter in Lebanon. Uh, some of the uh, political Hezbollah-type uh, supporter leaders already becoming belligerent because they think they're going to have a flood of cash coming uh, as uh, the money starts flowing into Tehran uh, from the Biden uh, uh, sanction relief. Let's talk about Mozambique. Mozambique now is in the news. Uh, even the New York Times is reporting about it because there's a sign that ISIS is resurging in Mozambique. The Islamic State's self-declared caliphate has fallen. Yes, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed. Yes, but two years afterwards, defeats in Syria and Iraq, the terrorist group has found supposedly, according to the New York Times and other reports, a lifeline in Africa where analysts say it's forged alliances with local militant groups in symbiotic relationships. And many of these homegrown insurgencies are only loosely connected to the Islamic State. But they've done a number of attacks recently, and they've claimed credit for a day-long rampage in war-afflicted northern Mozambique. So when we come back, we'll talk to Ryan Morrow with the uh, Clarion Intelligence Network about what does this mean? Are they simply trying to get pressed, or is jihadism more alive than we know? This is Zudi Jasser filling in for Seth Leibson on The Seth Leibson Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Judy Jasser filling in for Seth Leibson on the Seth Leibson Show, and it's always an honor to be joined by Ryan Morrow with the with the Clarion Intelligence Network. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So we were talking about Mozambique, and um, I, I wanted you to sort of fill in what's going on there because uh, there uh, was a 
massacre, I believe, uh, a siege of Palma in the, in a town of Mozambique that was the most brazen attack for this local insurgency. And uh, yes, ISIS is uh, uh, hurting, and it's where its home base used to be in Syria and Iraq, thanks to our troops, thanks to uh, the Trump administration's actions within its first six months in office. Uh, but the question is, and I, I think this is all relevant as people say, well, well, who cares about Mozambique? Well, yet a few days ago, and I don't even know why this was publicly announced, but our, our, our government uh, announced that uh, we were going to shift special operations away from counterterrorism, counterjihadism, and to really focus on China and Russia. I don't know why we announced that, but the fact that they did, I think it's important to sort of get a sense of the pulse of what's happening. So let's start with Mozambique, and then we'll go over to the Taliban, Afghanistan, and also Iraq and Syria. What's going on in Mozambique? Sure. So in Mozambique, there's been this radical Islamic insurgency uh, where they want to establish like an independent Sharia state in the northern part of the country. And so Mozambique is in the southeastern part of Africa, but the insurgency is in the northern part of Mozambique. And so in that space with the conflict, just like you would see in Syria and other places, ISIS says uh, there's other jihadists in a certain location. If we just show up, uh, we're likely to grow, uh, gain members from the other jihadist groups will be attracted to us because of our brand name. Uh, and then grow rapidly. And so ISIS is looking increasingly towards the countries in Africa uh, because there are insurgencies that people really don't know about. They have room to grow there. People, the Muslim populations in those areas have not lived under the caliphate to realize how terrible it is. Uh, And things just aren't going ISIS's way in the Middle East. So they've got to look elsewhere. So uh, I think it's likely that Africa is going to become like the new Middle East in terms of... um, U.S. counterterrorism efforts involving special forces uh, and Mozambique and some other places could become Syria-type situations where you have insurgencies and instability and then ISIS or another group comes in and starts trying to fill the gap and then everything escalates. And then all of a sudden, America feels compelled morally and from a national security imperative standpoint to get involved. So you're, I think Americans are going to slowly be able to point to countries in Africa on the map due to conflict. Yeah, and I think you know the reports are that despite uh, uh, the, their uh, decreasing footprint, ISIS still has a war chest of over $100 million and a global network of cells uh, outside the Middle East from the Philippines to Afghanistan, et cetera. So this is something you and I and, and so many others have, have said repeatedly is that, you know, uh, one year it's al-Qaeda, next year it's uh, Jamaat Islamiyah, uh, you know, Jamaat Fukra, uh, whatever, you, you know, permutation of the whack-a-mole program of jihad, the ideology is as strong as it's ever been. I, I don't think there's any evidence that when it comes to globally, if anything, the Arab awakening was was a positive move against dictatorship. But it was a huge step uh, against uh, freedom and, and for Islamists because of the vacuums that were created. Uh, and we've not really had a strategy. So what do you see, uh, you know, um, in Afghanistan, for example, uh, most of us, even I have been dragged kicking and screaming now, pretty much admitting that uh, there's no military solution, that even though it was nice to have American troops there as the only adults in the area, it was not worth the blood and treasure of our sons and daughters being lost in these 
you know, endless wars, as it's been called. And but yet, obviously, it's an ideology that has to be countered. Um, let's talk briefly about the offensive nature of picking 9-11, where Biden announced that he was going to withdraw on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which basically hands the narrative to the enemy, right? They picked the day 9-11 to attack us, and now we're giving them that same day to retreat? I, I don't get that. I'd love to hear the conversations that went on in the White House about why that was a good idea and who was involved in that, because it's so monumentally stupid. It's not one of those situations where you can say, here's the good argument on either side, and here's the one argument or one side that I feel has a stronger basis. No, this is just nonsensical. There's nothing really going for that other than some impulse someone in the White House had and said, you know, it would be a good idea to set a withdrawal deadline of 9-11, and I feel like there were no follow-up conversations to say, well, how could this go wrong for us? Because it's just a remarkably terrible idea. So what will happen is, is on the very last day, on, on the anniversary of 9-11, the Taliban's going to do something so that they can hoist up their flag in victory and then have a major ideological victory when we didn't. Ha- it didn't have to be that way. Even if you're in favor of a withdrawal, uh, a complete withdrawal, you can still characterize it as a victory where there's been enough progress. Uh, th- there should be basically a political campaign saying, look at everything we accomplished because most people are unaware of what we got out of this. You have to really research for it. Um, and I think that that's important for people to see uh, so that we can beat back the Taliban's ideology, but also the troops that serve there deserve it. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I had a podcast uh, that came out two weeks ago uh, in which I said anything, any other day but 9-11. And the, right. I mean, that that was basically it, right? I mean, they could have picked any other day, August 20th for all I care. But all of the, all, not only the memory of our soldiers that gave the ultimate price uh, from Pat Tillman to, to so many that lost their lives in Afghanistan— to, to now let their memory on the anniversary that's Patriot's Day. 9-11 is American Patriot's Day because we came back stronger, because we came back and and fought them over there because we didn't want them to come here again. And now we pick the day they picked to attack us and kill over 3,000 of our fellow citizens. And to withdraw, I mean, I, I hope they decide to, to do a mea culpa on it uh, because— I think every military family, every American should be offended by the fact that they're picking that day. Um, let's yeah, talk. I'd love to oh, hear the argument in favor of it. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're trying to say I, that. I just can't. I can't figure it out. It's it's insanity. I, I think it's because the folks driving the ship are anti-American, and and they feel that. Uh, and and this is what I'm afraid of, Ryan. Is I'm st- I wasn't uh, uh, conscious during the Vietnam era. I was born in '67, uh, but I can tell you that when I look back at the sentiment, the anti-military sentiment that started to arise as our troops who went to fight uh, in Vietnam for against communism, against the threat of the Soviets, uh, came back to be uh, pilloried and otherwise. I'm afraid now, as you see some of the sentiment after. Just the, 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 the propaganda and the misinformation spread about what happened on January 6th, the misinformation about uh, the, the penetration of white supremacism in our troops and other things. Uh, I, I'm afraid that some of this might be anti-American mentality. You have uh, 15 seconds and we'll come back and continue on the other side. Anything? 
Ryan? Sure, I think there is that blame America first mentality, especially from those that like to pompously say, look at how objective I am. I hate my own country. Exactly. And I think that's they're probably going to say, well, we need to leave. So Americans will be uh, glad that we're gone on 9-11. I don't think so. I think it's going to cause more backlash, just like their approach to so many of the progressivist things that are being rammed down our throat in the first 100 days. This is Zudi Jasser sitting in for Seth Leaps, and we'll be right back with Ryan Murrow of the Clarion Intelligence Network. Welcome back. Zudi Jasser filling in for Seth Leapson on the Seth Leapson Show. We are talking to Ryan Morrow with the Clarion Intelligence Network. And uh, before we leave the issue of Afghanistan, uh, I, I wanted you to just sort of talk about uh, what can Americans get out of not only what we I think we accomplished some there. We got rid of al-Qaeda there. We, their base was destroyed. And, and I think uh, ultimately uh, it was a necessary operation. Um, what could be done going forward if the Biden administration were to call you and say, well, what should be our strategy in Afghanistan? What would you say? Because right now the Taliban's running the show. Sure. Well, I think what I would say is, would be predictable to you because it's the same mantra that both you and I have had since 9-11, which is there's got to be an ideological war. There's still a massive number of madrasas in Afghanistan that are not registered with the Afghan government, a huge amount of foreign funding coming in from Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Uh, like, there's just no accounting for the spread of the ideology uh, with our counterinsurgency strategy or anything else. It's all about using our guys with guns to kill their guys with guns and to protect territory, but it's, it's missing the jihad factory. So there has to be a policy to sever Pakistan's influence on Afghanistan uh, because all of this flows out of the Pakistan-based infrastructure um, and then also, of course, Iran, Qatar, and the, and the rest of them. Um, but if we're going to withdraw, uh, I would say th- there could be a plus side to that, which is that if things go south and the Taliban and some other groups start gaining a lot of territory, you might see it. In fact, we're already seeing uh, certain local tribes forming their own security groups to fight off the Taliban because they'll have to. Um, they won't be able to just say, oh, let the Americans or the Afghan security forces take care of it. That could be positive. And even if we end up back in Afghanistan, if it's done at the invitation of the elected Afghan government, it's a much different context. And it also enables us to pressure the Afghan government to do things with corruption and the ideological war in return for our help, as opposed to us just kind of being there and and saying we're not going to leave. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, McLean's had a, a great interview with Dr. Seema Samar, and uh, they were talking about she's a reformist, a, a women's rights activist. And she goes through in the interview and says, you know, the title is, is How to End the Endless War in Afghanistan. And in there, uh, she talks about the fact that, uh, first of all, there aren't that many true. I mean, President Trump already had talked about removing troops. Biden is presenting this as if it's his idea. I mean, there is literally almost no difference between the policy approaches other than I, I, I'm pretty sure. Well, I shouldn't. You know, that's, that's right. Actually, President Trump almost met with the Taliban. And so forget that. Right. I mean, it's almost the same. Right. But uh, never mind that. But, um, you know, the bottom line is, is the the. if you read it, she's saying just help us protect civil society. So So my thought is. And I think the U.N. now is so corrupt, it's impossible. But in the 90s, 
You know, the reason that the Bosnian approach, even though it took Clinton three years, the reason that worked and there's streets named after Clinton in, in Bosnia, uh, uh, which, by the way, is uh, one of the first, uh, um, you know, Muslim countries to, to have an embassy. Um, I'm sorry, Kosovo, to have an embassy in yeah. Jerusalem uh, in, in Israel. And, uh, um, you know, what's what's amazing there is that they had UNPRFOR, the UN Protection Forces, that had troops from every country that tried to maintain peace, that uh, ultimately led to a way in which it was divided, and because the world was bought into that and needed to make sure, and because it was in Europe's back door, it was in Europe. So uh, I think that's a little different. But Afghanistan, as she says in this interview, is going to continue to produce uh, radical offshoots and metastases from the cancer that is the Taliban. But she does lay out in here something that I think is just very important to underscore, which is that people don't realize while we were there for almost 20 years, we still did not help the folks on the ground build civil society. We still ended up catering to the the old establishment folks, the, the government that they said – she said those were not the, the people's choice that ultimately really didn't become a democratic Afghanistan. And, and for whatever reason, it's easy to say in retrospect it was screwed up, but uh, uh, it is what it is. Let's, let's talk about France. And the reason I want to talk about France is there's a piece that's out this week – uh, that talks about a, a letter that was penned by 20 retired generals to Ema- Emmanuel Macron, president of France. And in that letter, published on an obscure website, but these generals penned basically saying that uh, France is headed towards a civil war with this Muslim population. And uh, it's getting a, a lot of traction. Macron has – this is not a new thing. France has been dealing with a number of terror attacks in the past year while the rest of the world has been dealing with the pandemic. Uh, but I do think there's – I wrote a piece in Newsweek a month ago about the cautionary tale that's happening in Europe with jihadi groups and jihadism. So when we come back uh, – Ryan, you can stay with us another segment? Sure. Okay. When we come back, uh, I want to get your take on France, on what we can learn from it, what does it mean for greater Europe, and also the connection to Turkey. This is Zudi Jasser sitting in the seat for Seth Leapson on the Seth Leapson Show. Welcome back. Zudi Jasser in for Seth Leapson on the Seth Leapson Show. We are honored to be joined by Ryan Morrow of the Clarion Intelligence Network. We're talking about France now. We're sort of making our way around the world of uh, jihadi threats and uh, trying to remind everyone that uh, the threat's still there. It continues to grow. It has not abated. Yes, uh, uh, ISIS was uh, decimated uh, in its uh, primary location, and its geographic footprint has shrunk, but its intellectual, its ideological footprint has continued to grow. And um, this letter penned by some generals, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is in France they're talking about uh, in recent months, Tunisians, a Chechen, a Pakistani man have carried out terror attacks on French soil. And the the piece in The Spectator says France is in danger of becoming what Afghanistan was in the 80s and Bosnia in the 90s, a battleground for Islamist fighters from around the world. And they then say taking back control of the borders won't be enough. Some of the extremists are born and bred Frenchmen and women, even if they hold everything the republic stands for. So... Ryan, what what are some messages? Why should Americans pay attention to what's happening in France? 
It's very simple. If you want to see the likeliest future of the United States, look at Europe. Uh, it's not set in stone that what happens in Europe comes to the United States, but in the vast majority of cases, that's where we're headed. And I see no reason to believe that this trend in Europe isn't going to take place in the United States. It's already happening on a smaller level. Now, the warnings about a civil war against Islamist radicals in France, is it's important. I also worry a little bit about a self-fulfilling prophecy, because even in the United States, I feel like I'm hearing more and more prominent voices calling for secession, breaking up the United States based on politics or race, um, or warning about an inevitable civil war. So you have to strike a balance between saying, look, we're trending towards balkanization and basically extremist gang battling, um, where you have different gangs of white supremacists, Antifa and Islamists, shooting each other up in the streets and, and innocent people caught in this middle, warning about that trend, which is where I think the upcoming decades hold for us, uh, versus saying it's definite or making people feel as if their death is right around the corner, which then assists the extremists. So it makes it very difficult to talk about these things. Um, I would say I take issue with the analysis that France is going to enter a civil war where it's the Islamists versus everyone else. I think it's more likely, like I said before, to be like an extremist mosh pit where you have white supremacist entities and jihadist entities and Antifa entities all battling it out in the streets and then people feeling forced to side with one or the other, or just being caught in the middle, and the state is stuck in a state of paralysis. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, what's fascinating, I I wrote a piece for Newsweek on this cautionary tale, what's happening in Europe back in March, and and one of my points in it was, you know, Sebastian Kurtz, the the prime minister of uh, Austria, also nailed it on the diagnosis side. He said political Islam is a problem. They had just had an attack against, uh, I think, four clergymen or or uh, folks that uh, uh, were uh, slaughtered by a terrorist uh, that uh, claimed to belong to ISIS, and that was in November. And the response immediately and, – and by the way, Austria had not significantly had many attacks. Uh, they have had their Muslim population increase from a few hundred thousand to – few million. Uh, so, you know, it's gone up by, uh, and I, I, that might be more than the actual numbers, but the bottom line is is uh, they're trying to figure out how to deal with the shift in culture. But the treatment he posed was he tweeted out and invoked quickly that anyone harboring the idea, he tw- this is from Kurtz, anyone who harbors the idea of political Islam will be uh, arrested, incarcerated, etc., uh, and uh, sure enough, the Islamists uh, that were there, including the, the Bridge Initiative of uh, Georgetown, Muslim Christian Center for Understanding that has a perch there in Austria, uh, basically uh, uh, said that this is anti-Islam, Islamophobia, etc. Uh, that doesn't work. You don't defeat bad ideas. You don't defeat bad ideas by pushing them underground, as Turkey can uh, show what happens when that happens. So w- how do we counter? I think America is going to be the solution. How do we get them to understand that America works because we're not based on a race, because we don't push bad ideas underground. We have more free speech. Uh, I think we have to wage an ideological war and defend and explain why the United States is the way it is and why we're proud to be this way. We're not just a piece of territory um, that has had economic success because we have a lot of people. Um, There's a true ideology and certain principles 
that have been proven to work, and they're also fragile. The United States is special because you have to work for a secular democracy, um, and you have to defend it. In terms of foreign policy, we have to have a strategy focused on the state sponsors of extremism, uh, which we still don't have. It's a remarkable thing to say. Um, But all of these extremist movements, the radical Islamic ones and even the non-radical Islamic ones um, that are extremist movements, in some way they always come back to foreign factories that are aided and abetted by governments. Uh, consistently, Antifa, white supremacists, or Islamist groups. So uh, maybe we've overlearned the lesson of, oh, we're fighting non-state actors. It's a different type of war. Because in some ways, it isn't. Yeah, we need to pay attention to what's happening in Europe. I mean, uh, you know, France has, uh, now Macron has, uh, uh, with Islamic leaders there, developed a charter that he wants them to adhere to. Uh, in America, I think folks, uh, um, you know, many in the West, uh, all, not just America, have said, oh, this is a loyalty oath and you can't make immigrants do this. Well, listen, we take a citizenship oath that, that swears to abide by the, 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 the principles and protect and defend our Constitution um, from enemies foreign and domestic. So uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. The problem is, is that uh, behind simply taking an oath, there has to be a mechanism to bring their ideas in line with that. And uh, they have stopped foreign funding. Uh, I think if you look, Austria cut it off immediately a few months ago. Uh, they, uh, the French are now talking about that. Uh, but they still don't have a mechanism. And we tried to have hearings about this in the U.S., which is how do you vet? It's amazing. After January 6th, all of a sudden now they're talking about security clearances and looking at the military for white supremacism, et cetera. Yeah. And we were calling on doing the same thing after Nidal Hassan slaughtered 13. Uh, a doctor decided to slaughter as part of al-Qaeda on November 9th, 5th, 2009. He, he kills 13 of our service members, injures 31, and we we called for a commission to talk about security clearances within the military and infiltration of Islamists. Same thing after, remember the attack of an American soldier that uh, joined, you know, the Islamists in Kuwait? There was a bombing that was done by one of our our own service members. After all of it, we kept calling for anti-jihadi clearances, and it, it, it never came around. It was, oh, too offensive. It's amazing how... Uh, political reactions to these topics change based on which extremist you're talking about. And then there's people out there like myself who are pulling our hair out of our heads because we're we're saying, look, we're at, a lot of us are all talking about the same thing. It's an ideological war, but you have each tribe protecting the people that are usually falsely associated, you know, with their tribe or their political base. And it's really remarkable to see right now, just like you said, like you have the left wing talking about proposals that the American right wing was talking about in regards to Islamism. So you just switch what extremist group you're talking about, and and it's like the two political sides switch their stances. Can I keep you for one last segment in a couple minutes? Sure. Okay, so when we come back, let's talk about solutions and what we really need to be doing against the global jihad. Zudi Jasser in for Seth Leibson on The Seth Leibson Show. This is Zudi Jasser on the Seth Leapson Show. It's great to be with all of you. Uh, we are joined by Ryan Morrow of the Clarion Intelligence Network. So we've talked in the last hour about the jihadi threats that continue. Uh, we uh, do not want our country to take the eye off the ball. Uh, the threats uh, are 
uh, always there. They've been increasing, and they just have shifted geography because the ideology is there. It will take root wherever it's not countered. So, Ryan, in the last two minutes here, tell us what should what should we be if you had uh, thirty minutes with the Biden uh, White House in in creating a counter jihadi strategy? What should we do? I would recommend uh, adding to the state sponsors of terrorism list a state sponsors of extremism or state sponsors of hate list. Uh, And that way, these governments who try to dance around whether they're a sponsor of terrorism because they sometimes arrest certain ones can't get around the fact that they sponsor the ideology. Uh, That's the one common thing that they all have. And that really should be the dividing line. If you're a theocracy you are going to have to educate your citizens as to why that theocracy is a good thing in order to stay in power. And the result is is that you're promoting extremism. So to me, having that dividing line of, well, if you're promoting these anti-American ideas, anti-Semitism, theocracy, then we're going to treat you just like we do with a state sponsor of terrorism, because terrorism and extremism are are so closely linked. I I think you would reshuffle uh, the world order in a pretty positive way Uh, but we still dance around in the gray zone a little bit where it's like well is pakistan a state sponsor of terrorism and we bend over backwards and say well no not really because they help us on certain circumstances but if you change that question to is pakistan a state sponsor of hate and extremism everyone's on the same page boy you know that would be that would be the you know let the games begin because Imran Khan from Pakistan, uh, uh, the Pakistani uh, prime minister, uh, ex uh, uh, cricket player, I think, um, basically said he called for Muslim countries to force Western governments to criminalize insulting the prophet and called for a global boycott of the West. This was just two weeks ago. So, you know, it's interesting. I think I, I couldn't agree with you more. This was the the quagmire we we tried to prevent in the the Religious Freedom Commission that I served on for four years. And uh, you, you really can't play nice with countries that maybe we care about our gas prices, maybe we care about certain economics, but we're seeing it with China. You know, the LeBron James of the world that are going to ignore genocide of the Uyghur population because they want their sneakers to sell, you know, that's that's absurd. And you can't uh, really stand for human rights if that continues. Ryan, thanks for all that you do. Keep, keep strong, stay strong, and uh, keep in touch. Any last comments? All right. Thanks, Zudi. All right. Take care. Thanks for being with us, Ryan. Good luck with everything. And this is Zudi Jasser. We'll be back 